0: Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac!
1: You blew it up!
0: Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Bregorian, Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies. And today we're going to be talking about a new book by a retired Border Patrol agent that gives you not the politics of what the Border Patrol does, but the actual nitty-gritty of what an agent does what it's actually like the author is paul Eberly. the title of the book is look at the dirt the story of border patrol agents through their own eyes and it's just out this month and available in at amazon at least and also has its own website lookatthedirt.com so paul thanks for joining us And if you could just sort of give listeners, first of all, a little background on yourself, and then we'll talk about the book as well.
2: Sure. Good afternoon to you. I'm a recently retired Border Patrol agent. I joined the Border Patrol back in 97. Spent 23 of those 24 years with the Border Patrol in stations from El Cajon in the East San Diego County to uh, Tucson Station, Sonota Station, finally Grande Station for the last 10 years. Did a lot of things, mostly patrolling the border. (laughs) Right, right. I was never a staff agent or anything like that. I was always on the line, except for brief periods when I was a firearms instructor at the academy. Or Actually, that's it. Just when I was firearms instructor, the only time I was not actually patrolling the border. Briefly served as an acting watch commander, but that that wasn't my thing. I was just a first-line supervisor for my last 14 years prior to that just an agent.
0: So actually on the line, basically. Um, Yes. Just a little more background, how'd you end up getting to the Border Patrol? You talk about it a little bit in the book. It's sort of a interesting, in other words, and maybe even sort of a little more broadly, how do people end up at the Border Patrol? I mean, you know, it's one thing to say, well, you know, I want to be a police officer because I've seen people in my community as a teenager being police officers, or I want to join the military. But, you know, unless you live right near the border, it's not like most people ever see Border Patrol agents. So how did you and how did generally people even think of joining the Border Patrol?
2: (laughs) I had grown up wanting to be in the military my whole life. That was the only consideration. Right. And when I got there, I hated every minute of it pretty much. (laughs) So,
0: (laughs) Be careful what you wish for, right?
2: (laughs) Exactly. You're going to get it. After I left the Marine Corps, uh, I kind of knocked around after that. I was a little bit lost, tried college, didn't like it. I worked in bars and nightclubs in Los Angeles County and a little bit in Phoenix. And uh, I saw an ad in the penny saver one day. (laughs) And I had heard about the Border Patrol as a teenager. I I read a book called Unrepentant Sinner by a man named Charles Askin. So I I had some background as to what they used to do. Mm -hmm. And then the nightclub I worked at in West Covina there were failure to yields that would happen on i ten all the time. They had run up from the Temecula checkpoint or the uh the other checkpoint on i five and
0: this is just for listeners. this is in uh, North county San Diego, right
2: coming up from North county right. right, and then they would they would bail out right by my club in West Covina, so they were being chased for a long time hmm. and that just kind of put it in the back of my mind and then uh when the penny saver ad came up, I just happened to notice it, and I thought, oh, I guess I will go and go and take the test. For those of you under 40, 50 years old, Penny Saver was a direct mail classified ad that just showed up in your mailbox.
0: (laughs) Right. A free giveaway thing. So you don't really go into it in the book, but you do mention the background of some of the other agents, either ones you named or ones you came up with, you know, pseudonyms for. But I mean, one of them was like a former sheriff's deputy or they had experience in police department. Was it your experience that most of the people you worked with had prior law enforcement experience, or was it mainly former military, or what was the mix?
2: Yeah, I, I have to say it's a pretty eclectic mix. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of guys that used to be in the military and girls. I, I, I use guys in a non gender specific way. <laughs> but, uh, People from all over. Some, some people were in the service. Some people were right out of college. Some people had been law enforcement previously and just saw a better deal with the Border Patrol. Right. There was one guy who was his major with brain chemistry. He had an advanced degree in brain wow. chemistry, master of music, uh, mm-hmm. all kinds of people in the Border Patrol. It's
0: a very interesting. eclectic mix. So first, let's start with the title and then sort of how did you come to write the book? The subtitle is clear enough the story of Border Patrol agents through their own eyes. But the main title is, Look at the Dirt. I can kind of, you know, you can kind of surmise what that might mean. But what, what is that? What does look at the dirt mean? Where that come from?
2: I had first heard it from a supervisor who didn't know me, but he was legendary at the El Cajon station. His name was Tom Johnson. And he would yell at people to look at the dirt, you know, meaning to cut sign. You're looking for a foot sign, vehicle sign, animal sign. Whatever you're looking for, they left sign in the dirt, and that's what you should look for and follow.
0: Looking for the tracks, in other words, sort of Indian right. tracking. Uh, yeah, you're tracking. Right. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Although at some point, I mean, the cover picture—you've <laughs> got a guy looking at the dirt, but looks like there's footprints everywhere. I mean, uh, it seems to me <sighs> it's a certain. There's two things. First of all, it takes a certain level of experience to be able to differentiate what you're seeing, but also. You know, if you've got 300 people coming over, there isn't anything in the dirt to look at. Is is there? Do you know what I mean?
2: <laughs> yeah. You you kind of have to know what you're looking for and, and see what's on top of what. Right. In, in that case, in the cover photo, you've got my friend Corey's. He had followed a group of 15 into this big wash, and there were multiple groups in the wash that kind of blew out his sign, right, including right. cattle. But, uh, yeah, he's just kind of standing there like, what do I do next?
0: Right. Interesting.
2: As soon as I saw that picture, I I had to ask him if I could use that for the cover, because that's just perfect.
0: (laughs) So what led you to write this book? You're not a writer, right? This is your first book. There's nothing wrong with the writing. I thought that was fine. But I mean, it's not something you've done for a living. So how did you end up deciding to write a book?
2: I always joked about it. This is going to be in my book. Oh, I see. (laughs) Something crazy was going on. Right. But uh, I've always read books. I was raised in a house full of books. It's always something I kind of wanted to do. I always thought I'd be writing like World War II history, but when college didn't pan out, I just kind of put it on the back burner. And then I had these notes. We had these little green books that we take notes in for court purposes or for uh, just so you remember who emailed who and what you have to do. And I would just put little notes on what what I did that day. Hmm. And uh, I have about 300 of these little green notebooks.
0: Wow. Does everybody, all agents have something like that? They keep them?
2: Well, we're supposed to keep them. Not everybody does, but I just kind of made that a priority a while back. It just got me the idea that I have all these notes. I should put it together. I might as well. I'm retired. Right. And then it just kind of took on a life of its own at that point.
0: So you write in the book, you know, this book is by and for Border Patrol agents, those who might consider becoming agents and interested folks who wish to learn what real agents do in the field. And I think it does that. What I found Kind of useful was that even though the book is like 300 pages, including the glossary, the individual, they're almost like vignettes, you'd call them, or short stories are, you know, two, three, four, five, six pages long each. It's the kind of book that you can dip into and put down and come back to. Was that kind of your thinking, or did it just sort of end up being that way?
2: That was exactly my thinking. I didn't want to get too deep in the weeds, although sometimes I kind of did. I wanted it to be an accessible book, something you could read. And I read a lot, but it's in 15 to 20 minute increments.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly.
2: Some books are easier to read that way than others. So I wanted mine to be easy to
0: read. So some of it's based on your own notebooks, I guess. But a lot of it is other people. Either you're naming them or you are kind of giving them labels because you don't want to name them. Maybe they're still in there, whatever it is. Right. When you approached people and said, you got any interesting stories for me? What kind of reaction did you get from uh, other agents or guys who were still working in the field?
2: All kinds of different reactions. Some of the more compelling stories, agents were not ready to talk about, and mm. they definitely didn't want it in a book. And and I understand that. Right. Even though they would have been they would have been good ones to get across, but usually uh, I'd say most of the agents I approached were were pretty forthcoming. A lot of them would tell me a story, and then we'd spend an hour and then they would say, I don't want that in the book. <laughs> <laughs> Great.
0: Thank you very much.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little concerned, but right. a lot of the stories in the book I was involved in tangentially, even if it wasn't my story.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I responded to it, or I heard about it later, right. and I had an idea that I wanted it in the book, but it was totally up to the agent. We would talk back and forth. I would write it up, send it back to them, email it to them, or, or show it to them, and, and they would agree or disagree or tell me to make changes. But I wanted it to be how they remembered it
0: right right and how many of the agents or i mean you know half most none that you talk about in here are still actually in the border patrol words, is that one of the reasons they might not want the stories to be out because they still have pensions and they want to get to retirement age before being fired
2: (laughs) it's pretty hard to fire a border patrol well okay. in, in the case of the book, I just wanted to make them comfortable sure. sharing their stories with me. So e- even the guys that are retired, I either changed their name or gave them made up initials or something, right. just to make it easier for them. You know, I just like I said, I just wanted them to relax a little bit, sure, not worry too much. And, and it was I had to convince guys, look, <laughs> it's just a story, and we can change the location, can change your name, but if you don't like it, it ain't going in the book. Right. And there were right. quite a few stories that didn't go in.
0: So, is there a story or a couple stories that really, you know, sort of stuck with you that you think are most important to get out? I mean, because a lot of it is, it just gives you a sense of what agents do every day, and it's obviously what you were trying to do, but was there anything that really stood out as kind of an important story that made some kind of point that you think is worth underlining? Wow. (laughs) Okay, well.
2: The one story where, uh, an agent goes on a trail at night and he he walks, you know, pretty far into the into the weeds and uh meets a, a lone walker who's just a, an old guy. Yeah. Clearly a US citizen. Once you start talking to people you can figure out sure. pretty quick. Just an encounter on a trail in the dark tells the old guy, you know, maybe you shouldn't be out here on your own. There's there's aliens out here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the old guy says, Oh, I'm I'll be fine. You watch out over there over that hill there though. So my friend bids him Good night, and goes on out to look for the aliens responding to a sensor activation, and, and he finds them.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Later, when he gets them back to the truck and he runs their names and dates of birth over the radio, he finds out that every single one of those aliens is an aggravated felon. Wow. Robbery, assault, burglary. And he asks them, why didn't you guys jump me or, or at least run away? And they said, because of the big white guy behind you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is the old man, in other words, that... Right. Encountered
2: yeah. Him. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a big, tall guy. Yeah. When it was described to me, I imagined the Night King in yeah. Game of Thrones, right? The big, big <laughs> right, guy right. with white hair. <laughs>
0: Interesting. And Paul's like, "No, I'm alone. There was yeah. there was
2: no one behind me." And they're like, "Oh no, he was he was right behind you." And Paul never saw him. Or, Interesting. Or kind of right. creeped him out a little bit. Yeah, I
0: can imagine. Geez. Maybe
2: the old man was looking out for him.
0: This just occurred to me. I mean, I, I don't, I didn't see anything like this in the book, but it just occurred to me. Since you guys are out in the dark doing a lot of your work i mean obviously there's patrolling during the day and you find aliens but i mean nighttime is the time you would want to get through if you were trying to avoid detection is there kind of a ghost stories element to do they tell each other stories like that kind of creepy you know surreal things that happen
2: there there are a ton of border patrol ghost stories out there in the the weeds in the dark but uh, that that was the closest thing he just PJ thinks of that old guy as his guardian angel,
0: but, Interesting,
2: but that's the closest thing to a ghost story in my book. I just thought that was a really cool story.
0: Right. Interesting. So this isn't a politics book, obviously, but agents must have thoughts about what's going on. I mean, you yourself refer to, you know, the past two years really being problematic, obviously, at the border. Did you Sort of make a decision to keep politics mostly out of the book, or are there conclusions, policy conclusions we should be drawing from this?
2: I'm going to try and stay in my lane here. Okay, the ground level book from from an agent's perspective, but I will say that yes, the last two years are a complete abdication of governmental responsibilities on the border. You got agents out there trying to do good work that are. Uh, you know, being diverted for transport, escort, detention—you know—all these non-border patrolling type duties—and Right. And the guys that are left on the ground are just completely overwhelmed. You know, if you see a group of a hundred and you just you roll in there and try and catch something, you might just get what you can physically catch, maybe two people.
0: Sure, right, or or they turn themselves all in, and then you spend the rest of the night dealing with <laughs> I was that.
2: Just going to say, or yeah. the, or the aliens are chasing you.
1: Yeah, <laughs>
2: right. Exactly. <laughs> and in that case. You know, you might sit down a group of 100 and have to wait for four hours for them to assemble transport. It might take, you know, five or six vans to get your group in Right. or have a hundred mile journey ahead of them on really bad roads. So it's, it's just a complete mess right now. I, I tried to keep most of the politics out of it, but right. it doesn't sound like it when you read the book. It sounds maybe a little more political than i meant it to sound but Mm -hmm. there's about 50 pages of ranting that 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 i cut out of there that i didn't think a reader would want to hear as far as border patrol agents are concerned there's there's plenty of democrat border patrol agents there's plenty of republican border patrol agents most of the guys i talk to are pretty libertarian after a while realize government is not really doing a good job sure that's kind of where i come out now maybe a half-Republican, half-Libertarian kind of guy. Mm, right. I, personally, I think government should defend the border, build the roads, regulate trade, and leave the rest of us alone Right, right. for the most part. You know, there's all kinds of different opinions.
0: So when did you get out of the patrol?
2: I got out in November of 2021.
0: Okay. So you were there for the, at least the beginning part of this administration. Did you deal with large-scale give-ups, you know, where big groups of people basically are searching you out and flagging you down?
2: Sure, it, it and it was very organized. Now, my last station was Casagrande Station, which is Arizona rear right? station. Right, it's it's where Interstate Eight and Interstate Ten meet up okay. in Pinal County, Arizona. The station's a hundred miles from the line, and you have to drive two hours, three hours, just to get where you're supposed to patrol the border. Right, so that's problematic. Then we have no ports of entry. Most of our patrol area on the line, well, really all of it. All the line area is on an Indian reservation.
0: Oh, oh, so yeah. So you dealt with the Tona Odom. Right. Who aren't the biggest fans of the Border Patrol? It's been my experience.
2: Once again, you know, people are people, right? There's all kinds of different opinions. I found that the older folks appreciated us more than the younger folks did. Right. But the reservation is like its own nation. So sure. we have a whole different set of rules and laws and ways to act. Right. It's very remote. There's 20,000 people living on it in an area the size of Connecticut, so Mm -hmm. it's sparsely populated. But there are are people out there, so you have to make determinations. And when these family units started showing up, it first happened in the Obama administration. We didn't get too much of it then. Mm -hmm. But then when when it resurfaced about halfway through the Trump administration, the smugglers figured out that a child equals a free pass, and people started renting out their kids. Right. Then it became more of a problem. So there would be groups of 50 or 60 or 20 just showing up. At a, we have a gate in the middle of nowhere, south of a place called Santa Cruz, and they would just show up at our gate. And there's a camp down there where agents spend a week. Hmm. You know, it's pretty consistently manned. And they would respond to that and they would just sit them all down. And you'd have to wait for the vans to show up, and you process them in. And just one time there, you know, it was a group of 20 or 30. And there was, we were calling out their names, you know, filling out the initial arrest paperwork and sorting through their property and call out a name. And it's this little, couldn't have been more than five or six Cuban boy. Yeah. Wow. He was filthy. He had wet his pants. He was terrified. He was shaking. And and he had no relatives in that group. Wow. So that's not in the book. Right. It did affect me. Maybe I should have put it in there, but that was just... Kind of symbolic of the whole thing. Right, right. His dad was in New York City. His mom, who knows where she was.
0: Incredible. Yeah.
2: That was happening all the time. Agents were breaking aliens to having children that were not their own. And there was no accountability. There was no research done. I mean, Border Patrol agents can only do so much. They come to the station and then they're gone.
1: Right, right. Of course.
2: services and then they're gone. I would like to think someone was tracking down the parents, but I know better.
0: Yeah, wow. So did you personally encounter adults with children that you determined weren't theirs?
2: I encountered adults with children that I was pretty sure weren't theirs, that right. were not acting like they were theirs, but that would have been in a field situation, and you just tell the transport guy what you think you have, and, right. and he throws them in a van, and they go north.
0: And somebody else has to deal with it, basically, right?
2: Right. Wow, right. interesting. And in processing, when I was a duty supervisor, I didn't see
0: a whole lot of that on my right. ship. So you know, you said you're keeping politics mostly out of the book. I get that. But are there improvements in the way the Border Patrol sort of does its job that you've drawn conclusions you've drawn from the these stories? In other words, I don't mean Washington political decisions. I mean, just for instance, you would mention the, uh, you know, two-hour drive before you can even get to where you're supposed to patrol. Seems pretty inefficient. I know sometimes they do these forward operating bases where guys will stay for a week or a month so that they're right there and they're not commuting every single day for half of their shift. Are there other kinds of, I don't know, just operational improvements or changes that sort of come out of the uh, experiences in the book?
2: Well, it's difficult to implement these things for any length of time. There was one supervisor, he's in the book, too, who uh, came up with a plan. This guy, he'd, he'd worked in Special Forces before he came to the Border Patrol. He was good at the planning process, and mm-hmm. he divided up the area into three zones. And in his vision, right, in his operational plan that was kind of adopted, sort of adopted uh, right. by different command staff, but in his vision, you would have a couple supervisors and maybe a dozen agents and they would work the same area together for, you know, a couple of weeks, a month. And they would take ownership of that area. They had their own radio channels. They had their own transport. They had their own days off set up and that eventually spread to other stations hmm. to various degrees. And I thought that worked out very well. you had, cause then you take ownership of your land and you take a little bit of pride and you know that you're shutting things down.
0: Zone defense kind of investment. Kind of like that. Yeah. yeah. Right.
2: And, and the border patrol tries to do that, but it's just—it's kind of a mess because everyone's coming and going. Everyone's got different things. There's training. There's this. There's that. There's a million—a million ways that the plan can go south. But for a short time, they—they they had that, and uh, it was pretty effective. Interesting. Another thing would be, uh, and, and this is my opinion—I don't speak for the border patrol. I think that the use of air units is not efficient from my perspective as a ground agent. I think the hmm. border patrol should have its own air assets and they should not be managed by some general in DC or whoever, whoever heads it now. They have their own stove pipe chain of command. The border patrol should have its own
0: helicopters basically mostly or not. Or what are you thinking? What do you mean?
2: Oh, I think helicopters are great. I, I think that, in various times, air mobile units were, were experimented with in the Border Patrol, and they would joke that they were foot mobile, right? Because they would, they would assign them an area way out in the middle of nowhere, and right. then there would be no air available because we don't control our own air. I and the guys would just drive out there and work 16-hour days.
0: So, in other words, <laughs> yeah. like helicoptering people out and landing them there. In other words, that's how they right. sort of, what do they call that, air cavalry or something in the military? Right,
2: air mobile. So. Air mobile, yeah. <laughs> yeah. right. From Parklips now, yeah. So I think something like that would be nice where you could have guys out on the ground or you have scope units out there and they see something and you'd launch a bird immediately and go get it. And now I don't know how efficient this would be, but with all the billions of dollars we've wasted on the virtual fence and all the, right? I don't even know, but it's a lot over the years the, the waste of money is just so incredible that I would yeah. think you could buy every Border Patrol agent his own helicopter at that point. <laughs> Probably.
0: Yeah. A billion, billion here, a billion there. You know, it adds up. Eventually, <laughs> exactly. So. What are your thoughts and what are the thoughts you got from other agents about the utility of uh, border wall, uh, border barriers in general? I mean, sometimes some people oversell them. This is just my opinion. President Trump oversold them. But other people undersell them. It seems to me that they're a useful tool, but they're just one tool. But what do what do agents think of of those kind of things?
2: I think generally they support it because you can see, like for instance, when I came up, San Diego was getting blitzkrieged every day by huge masses of aliens. You know, they had pedestrian fencing, but they would just run up the land through the port of entry. Sure. I think that walls do help. They channel your traffic into an area of your choosing. Right. So if you have Trump's for instance, from Sea to Shining Sea or from Sea to Gulf, you have this huge, big, beautiful wall. Mm-hmm. Well, it's going to have holes in it in the mountains and in the rivers because you can't, can't wall those off. Right. But that's where your assets go. Right, right. You know? And then you have, you know, the wall's got fiber optics in it. So, you know, when someone's going under it or over it, there's, there's ways to figure that stuff out. I thought the wall was a great idea. Like right. you said, it may have been oversold. It definitely was undersold by others. Sure. People who incidentally do believe in walls when it affects them personally.
0: (laughs) Right, obviously.
2: I think the wall should have been allowed to be completed, it should have been maintained, and then that would allow the Border Patrol to use its resources more effectively. Right.
0: What kind of reactions have you gotten from other agents to the book?
2: So far, they've been 100% supportive. (laughs)
0: That's good, yeah.
2: I was really worried about that. I mean, the book is most of all a tribute the people I've worked with, mm-hmm. some of whom are no longer with us. And I, I really wanted to portray it from an agent's perspective. And I wanted to get it out there so that regular people who, they see the news, they hear people yelling at each other, but maybe they don't hear a regular agent's perspective very much. These are all working class agents. They're not in any special high speed teams or anything. They're just guys that go out there troll the border, look at the dirt, and then they go home at the end of their shift. You mm-hmm. know, in a perfect world. And the agent feedback that I've gotten has been pretty positive, so I, I feel like that
0: part of my work is done. Good, good. It seems like it's a useful antidote to all of that, you know, whipping the aliens nonsense from uh, Del yeah. Rio. You know, with the horse agents uh, smeared like they were, even by the president.
2: Yeah, that was a mess. That's I'd been thinking of retiring, but that kind of that was the final nail on the coffin.
0: Oh, really? Like Interesting.
2: I take okay. it anymore after that. My wife has been a good sport for the last 20 plus years and uh, I didn't want to put her through some kind of investigation where right. I would be, you know, on ice for a couple of years like those poor guys were. Right. All I saw on that video is, and, and I didn't understand it at first either. I was never a horse patrol guy, so no, I don't know how to run a horse, but right. it was explained to me very quickly from experienced horse patrol agents that the twirling of the reins, mm-hmm. the horse doesn't want to go in the direction that he hears the reins
1: twirling.
0: Right, right, sure.
2: So the twirling of the reins was steering the horse away from running over the aliens.
0: Mm, interesting, right.
2: Because <laughs> the horses, they are They know what they're there for. They they smell aliens, they see aliens even in the dark, and they know that's where you want them to go. So it's not like an ATV, it's only going to go where you're going. Right. And the horses, you know, they want the aggressive horses that want to go catch the aliens. So this guy was controlling his horse for the safety of himself and the aliens. Right, And they tried to spin it into something it wasn't just because of the color of the alien skin, which I thought was just, it was just filthy business as far as I'm concerned. I I think those guys are in the clear
0: now, but that was a long two years for them. The process is the punishment, as they say, you know what I mean? Exactly.
2: Right. And, And while I might be able to take it, I didn't want to put my wife through that. Uses of force are way up. Assaults are way up. Right. Eventually, it's only a matter of time before today's your day and uh, you have to take your turn. And I just didn't want to put
0: her through that. Right. Interesting. So something you did, I don't want to end on a down note, but I'm going to ask the question. Anyway, you dealt with this a couple of times. You know, it seems to me some agents must come to the conclusion that it's kind of futile what they're doing. You know what I mean? In other words, you're sort of bailing out the Titanic. (laughs) And I mean, how do agents deal with that? What, in some cases, anyway, can seem like a sense of futility?
2: I imagine like any police officer would right, because you have a long career, you catch a lot of aliens, you see a lot more of them get away. You try to prosecute people, you see them not get prosecuted or beat the charges right i mean it's it's as old as as cop movies, right? you right. know the bad guy's always getting over, but you know you just how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time so. Right. 99.9% of agents, they go to work every day, they catch what they can, knowing that plenty is getting around them and, and they do the right thing. And uh, it becomes, to me anyway, it becomes a duty to the people that you're working with. Right. You know, you, do, you don't want to be the slug. You want to pull your own weight. You want to help out your buddies. And, right. and that's what it comes to. And then there's, there's the patriotism is there too. I, I'm defending the borders of my country, even mm-hmm. though it doesn't feel like it. And there's right. plenty of, plenty of times in the book where I I share my own experiences basically running away (laughs) Yeah, yeah. where it might've been, might be easy for someone to say, Oh no, I would have lit them up. But, uh, yeah, you want to go home at the end of your shift too. For sure. And then there's that 0.01% that, uh, maybe takes some money.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. You do. You do touch on some, you know, that not all agents are supermen. Some of them are really, there are dirty agents just as there are dirty cops or anything else well yeah okay well that's i'm talking about exceptions here but anyway <laughs> yes uh, <laughs> yes
2: yes exceptions
0: so do you have another book in mind is there a sequel for this one
2: i've got a lot of ideas i could have wrote three books just like this one right i don't know if that if that's what's <laughs> what's going to happen i've thought of fictional format where i build some characters and maybe put some true stories in there but just fictionalize them right, right. So that agents will be willing to share and Maybe make up a station, right? And and just put some stories in there. So I'm I'm working on different things, but nothing for sure yet. I I would love to write another one, though. I could write books about the Border Patrol for the rest of my life.
0: How's sales been of the book? I mean, it's just out, so it's hard to know. But anybody buying it yet?
2: Yeah, I've I've had a few sales. I I wouldn't call it a smashing success. But on the other hand, I would because I finished it and it's out there. Yeah,
0: exactly, (laughs) exactly.
2: You know, I didn't write it to get rich. I wrote it to get a message
0: out. Excellent. Okay, well, uh, thank you. We've been talking with Paul Eberly, retired Border Patrol agent, who is author of the brand new book, Look at the Dirt, The Story of Border Patrol Agents Through Their Own Eyes. And it's on Amazon. I don't think there's a lot of other books called Look at the Dirt. So if you just uh, search that on Amazon, it should come right up. Like I had said at the beginning, it really is the kind of book you can dip into read 5, 10, 15 pages and not lose the thread because it's not a single novel. It's like a whole series of vignettes, even though there are some kind of general themes here and there. So, uh, Paul, thanks for joining us. If you do write another one, uh, reach out to us and we'll see if we'll do another interview then.
2: Absolutely. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you. And finally, This was an appropriate interview for this week because if you're listening to this when we posted it, Friday of this week, March 31st, is Cesar Chavez's birthday, and that is increasingly being recognized as National Border Control Day. There have been resolutions introduced in Congress over the past several years. Obviously, it didn't get anywhere, but nonetheless, it recognizes Cesar Chavez's commitment to border control. I've written myself a decent amount about this, usually every year on or around his birthday, because he was a labor leader and he recognized that if growers, farmers, had easy access to illegal labor from Mexico, that his efforts to improve wages and working conditions for the people here doing agricultural work would be undermined. In fact, Chavez sometimes went a little overboard. He had a cousin, Manny, who uh, was an ex-con, and he had him organize groups of people on the border to literally beat up illegal aliens trying to get across so as to prevent them from breaking strikes he was uh, waging against employers for better wages. So I encourage people to go to the website National Border Control Day Dot com, and there's a variety of materials there, articles about Cesar Chavez and his commitment to controlling illegal immigration in order to protect American workers, because this is an important message to send out that this isn't about race, this isn't about ethnicity, this is about protecting Americans. Chavez's goal was economic protection of the least skilled and poorest Americans, Obviously, this immigration control protects taxpayers, protects national security as well. The basic point, though, is protecting Americans. And Cesar Chavez was a leader in that area when a lot of the people who were Republicans back then, who now probably would be more hawkish on border control, were actually pretty lax back then and were winking at the very least at loose borders because they wanted big growers to be able to have access to cheap, controllable labor. We need to move beyond that, and Cesar Chavez is one of the people who can show the way. That's it for this week. This is Mark Krikorian for Parsing Immigration Policy, signing off, and hope you join us next week.